0: and then I kind of watch him and watch him and watch him and watch him and it's, it's Noah going the other way. I'm meeting Noah for lunch that way and he's going that way and if you know Noah's car there's only one of, of it in the world. Um, it, it's like the Batmobile except a Toyota Tacoma Batmobile. It's, it's really cool. You should see it someday. Um, but I, it was un, un, unmistakably Noah and, and he passed by me and I kept driving and it's like one of those things where it took me a minute. I was like, hang on, we need to go to the same place. And so I called him and, you know, I'm thinking in my head, guys, when, when there's two people that are at odds, what's our thought, right? Who's right? What's your th- second thought? Surely I'm right, right? And, that, and I was right. So, we were going, so I called him and he had to make a U-turn in the middle of 17 and come back and meet me at Zaxby's. And I, t- I tell you that story because uh, Paul's concern for the church in Philippi is that they are going the wrong direction. He doesn't know that, but he's concerned that they are, and he's concerned that they are living what they think is the Christian life, and they're trucking along, going one way, and and yet Jesus is calling them and going a different direction, and he wants to make sure that they are very clear that they are going the right way. And so he writes um, this section of the letter, and it actually flows from verse 27 in chapter 1, so look up with me at verse 27. Andrew taught this last week. Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And Andrew taught us that that phrase, let your manner of life be worthy, is actually the Greek word for behave as a citizen. So behave as a citizen worthy. And and if you didn't know this, um, Jesus taught and Paul was in the time of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire spread all throughout the known world at the time. And so what would happen is is Rome would have citizens who were scattered throughout the empire. And so they could not maintain a national identity by proximity. Because they were all spread out. And they were having to assimilate these cultures into the Roman way of life. So they had citizens. And these citizens had a certain code of conduct. They had virtues that they were supposed to follow in their life, and they had ideals that they were supposed to try to emulate in their life. And so when Paul says this, live as a citizen worthy, their first thought was, I know what a Roman citizen looks like. What does a citizen of the kingdom of God look like? And so in chapter 2, Paul is going to answer that question for the church in Philippi. What does it look like to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God? So our passage is divided into two sections. The first section is the first two verses where Paul answers that question. This is what a citizen looks like. And in verses 3 through 11, he helps us know how we can begin to walk in that way. So let's start with verses 1 through 2. Flip with me, Philippians 2 verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What is Paul saying here? These two verses are two different sections of this one statement. The first verse, verse one, is the if statement. Verse two is the then statement. So he's saying, if these things are true, then you should live this way. So verse one, if these things are true, and and the sense for the word if here is really sense. It's kind of like saying, if your mama loves you. Does your mama love you? Of course my mama loves me, right? So he's saying, yes, if, since. Since these things are true, then we should go and live in this way, is the sense of it. So what are these blessings? Look in verse 1. The first one is this. If, if you have, Christian, any encouragement in Christ, the word encouragement is paraklesis. It means to call someone alongside. And the question is, do you have encouragement? Has Christ called you alongside him in the journey? Um, and if he has, then, look at verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. So the the question here, what he's saying here is, has Christ in your life, Christian, called you alongside him? Has he borne the yoke with you? Has he poured out his grace on you? Has Has he suffered with you through hard times? Has he stuck with you when you've been a sinner? Has he done that for you? Then you go and have the same mind towards other believers and other people in need. Have that same mind as the mind of Christ. The second encouragement, any comfort from love. What Paul is saying that word love is agape, and agape, you've heard it before, is unconditional love, but that's not the full, fullness of agape. Agape is an unconditional love that seeks the well being of the person that is loved over their own. It's Jesus on a cross for us. It's saying, I will lay down my own comfort to seek the comfort of someone else that so they may, might be comforted. And so, what he's saying is, Christian, do you, do you have comfort knowing that God the Father loves you, like with agape love, that his love will never let you go? Do you have comfort in that? Then, Look at at verse 2. Then have the same love towards the people around you. Have you been loved by the Father? Has he stuck with you through good and through bad? Has he poured out his grace on you? If so, then you go and love one another with the same love that God has loved, loved you with. That's what a citizen looks like. Look at the next phrase. Do you have any participation in the Spirit? That word participation is koinonia. It doesn't really mean participation. It means fellowship. And fellowship is an intimate word uh, that bonds believers together. It's, it's what we have here. It's what you have when you share your, your, your deepest life with another believer, and they pray for you, and they walk with you. That's fellowship. And he's saying, your fellowship is your fellowship with God himself. And the Bible is clear. Our fellowship with one another is based on our fellowship with God. First John 1.3 says that we have fellowship with one another because our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. So he's saying, Christian, you have fellowship in the Holy Spirit. Therefore, then, look at verse two, be in full accord and of one mind with one another. That phrase in the Greek means be intimate, be together, don't disagree, don't pull apart, but have fellowship with one another. And what Paul's asking them is, is Christian, has the Holy Spirit in your life grieved inside of you when you sinned rather than left you? Anyone else had that? Yes, you've sinned and yet God hasn't left? Like he's still there inside of you? Has the Holy Spirit waited for... Some of you, 20 years to convict you of a certain sin that's been in your life, and yet he's waited patiently. He hasn't been in a hurry. He's waited until the right time in your life. Has the Holy Spirit given you sweet times of fellowship with God and worship and in prayer? If that's the case, then you go and you fellowship with other believers in the same way. You stick with them through their sins. You be patient with them in their shortcomings. You, you don't be anxious for them to move on, but sit with them through their life. That's what Paul is saying. And the third encouragement, if you have any affection and sympathy, that word affection uh, in the Greek is splanknon. all right? And it means spleen, literally. Do you have a spleen, okay, right? A spleen, and what he's saying here in Greek is is that uh, splanknon is an affection, a love that comes from your gut. It's a a gut-level tenderness. The, The word's often translated tenderness towards someone else. Right, and then that word for um, for compassion or sympathy is oiktermos, and it comes from the Greek expression oi. Okay, so when you see someone like get hurt and you say oi, right? It's like ah, it's that type of like gut level reaction to someone else's pain. Um, I remember when I was in high school, distinct memory of mine of of I was in high school and I saw this fifth grader running down the hall late to class, right? We, we had the big backpacks, no iPads then, and you're running along and his backpack's swinging, he's got glasses on, and someone opens the door this way, he just goes, bah, right? He goes, boom, boom, right on his back, right? He just lays there moaning, and all of us are like, oi, right? We're like, ah, I can't believe that just happened. That's the sense here. The word oitermos means this gut-level sympathy, and, and what what is saying, what Paul is saying is that God has a gut-level compassion on you in your suffering sit in that for a second. God has a gut level compassion in your sorrows. Even if he caused those sorrows to grow you and is allowing them to sanctify you, he still feels a gut level compassion. He's not sitting in heaven be like, I don't see how he handles that one, right? But he is reaching out to you in compassion. He has a longing, a splanknon, a desire for you, a longing for you Christian. That is the longing and the compassion God has. And Paul is saying, you go and you live like that. What is he saying? He is saying that just like Roman citizens are supposed to to behave like their Caesar, Christians are supposed to behave like their God. We are supposed to live as people worthy. and, and And God is a God filled with love and compassion and encouragement and grace and presence in our lives. That's the picture of a citizen of the kingdom of God. I just want you to think for a second: What would change in your life if you began to live that way? If you began to live towards your family, or towards your coworkers, or towards your neighbor, and with that type of love and presence and sympathy and compassion, think about how the world would change if our church began to do that. The issue is there, there's a problem, right? Have any of you ever tried to live that way? Anybody just just tried to be that loving? you'll quickly realize that you have a big, big problem. Um, Have any of you, anybody got young kids in the room? Anybody, not many, have have any of you had young kids in the past, right? Okay, you're you're two-year-old every night at 3 a.m. crying and waking you up, and they're awake, and they just thought you might want to be awake too, right? And so they cry out, right? Have you tried in that moment to put on patience or compassion it's like, oh, I'm so sorry. Have you tried that 12 nights in a row? Have you tried it? I have. Well, how does it come out of my mouth? Get back in bed, right? It's, that's patience to me, right? This happened two nights ago, right? Rose came in our room. She's our four-year-old, and, and she came you know, t- trotting over the bed at 3 a.m., and I heard her, and I said, get back in your bed right now, <laughs> Right? And my wife, of course, got out of bed and tenderly walked her back to her bed because she's like basically Jesus. And, but I, I didn't, right? So she's got it. The sermon into her is to me. Um, how about you if you're, you're in the workplace and you're behind because all of us are behind these days because people don't hire enough employees. I don't know if you've noticed that. And so you're two months behind and you've got people under you and you're wondering why you're getting stressed. You come to the office and one of your reports comes into you and says, I'm so sorry to do this to you, but I'm really struggling. And I, just for my mental health, I'm going to have to quit, and I'm six months behind on my work, right? You ever tried to put on, like, gut-level compassion to that guy? Like, I'm so sorry for your mental health, right? Like, in that moment, how do you feel? Get out of here! Like, get out of my office, right? We don't do this very well. Why? Why is this hard? If we have tried to do this in our life, you will find that you have someone in your life named your self, And let me introduce you to yourself. they are sitting in your chair right now, okay? And yourself simply has no desire to live this way. Yourself has no ambition to be loving towards other people. Yourself has no desire to be compassionate to a person in need. Yourself thinks about yourself all day long. And Paul knows this. That's why I look at verse 3. After he gives us this beautiful description of the Christian life, he says, but do nothing from what? selfish ambition. He knows that as soon as you try to do this, you're going to come head to head with your self in your life. And and that is the reality that we live with. The Bible calls that your flesh, or your sinful nature, or your old man, or your old self. It's the the part of you that was wired in you since Adam and Eve that just seeks your own way, right? And that's how we are wired. And here's the reality. If you do not deal with your self, you cannot live worthy of a citizen of the kingdom of God. You will not be able to put on any sort of good fruit in your life if you are still consumed with yourself, right? Um, Let me read this quote to you. Um, Any of the guys that I I disciple or that I meet with have heard this quote so many times, so you get to hear it again. Um, Over the past two months, God has been doing this work of humility in me, and not that I'm becoming more humble. It's that he's convicting me that I'm not. Anybody been there before? And so I'm about to read a lot of quotes because there are people that have been walking this path longer than I have. And I just want to say, before I read this at the beginning, I, I think it's easy to see someone preaching a sermon and to think that they've got it. Like, we're, we're in a world of TED Talks and masterclasses, and, and, and you look, we look to people ahead of us, and we want to learn how do you do it. And this is not that. And I don't want you to confuse this for that. Like, if I say you during this sermon, I'm sitting in that seat right there talking to myself. Like, I, I am at the very beginning of this journey. All that preparing for this sermon on humility has done for me, and I just told you we're going to preach on humility, is it has made me realize how deeply arrogant and prideful and self-concerned I am in my life. So I want to say that because I don't want you to get the wrong impression that I am trying to teach you something about this humility. I'm on the road with you. But let me, let me read this quote from this guy. This is his realization of himself. I'll never forget the experience that awakened me to the reality of myself. As a fairly young Christian, I thought of repentance for my sins in terms of being sorry for the things I'd done. I was really sincerely sorry, yet I kept doing the same things over and over again. You may have been there yourself. Then I heard a wise teacher say, repentance is not being sorry for the things you have done, but being sorry you are the kind of person that does such things. With that, I began the disturbing discovery of myself. I began to realize that underneath the thin veneer of my religiosity lived a pervasive and deeply entrenched self-referenced human, which was driven by its own agendas, its own desires, its own purposes, and that no amount of superficial tinkering with the religious facade made any appreciable difference. Have you found that in your life? Because I sure have. That underneath the, the religious surface, the surface of my quiet times and my prayer life and me being a pastor, there is this deeply entrenched, self-referenced being called myself. And, and it, in myself, my flesh keeps me from being able to walk with Jesus. It, it is driving me to its own agendas, its own desires, its own purposes in my life. And if I do not deal with that self, I will not be able to progress in the Christian life. Okay. And, and, and so what is the way forward? What is the way forward in this life? If I want to embody verses 1 and 2 in my life, but I have a self that is fighting against that, how do I move forward? And it is the way of humility. And it is the only way forward in the Christian life. And some of you are like, man, I might as well tune you out because that's one of the virtues I don't have. And let me read you a couple quotes because I thought that too. For one thing, humility, that word comes from humus in the Latin, which means earth. Basically a word that means lowliness. It means to be at ground level. Earth is where we dump our trash. It's what we walk on. And yet it produces out of itself fruit, right? It turns our garbage into something fertile and fruit bears forth. So that's the idea for humility. Andrew Murray, 19th century pastor, said, Humility is the only root from which the graces can grow. It's the one indispensable condition of true fellowship with Jesus. Augustine from the 300s said, humility is the foundation of all other virtues. The soul in which this virtue does not exist, there cannot be any other virtue except in mere appearance. He's saying that, that if you don't have humility, you can't have love, you can't have patience, you can't have kindness, you can't have any other grace if it is not built on the taproot of humility in your life. Why? Because without humility, you cannot die to yourself. And if you do not die to yourself, you cannot bear any true Christian fruit in the Christian life. Every fruit, every real genuine fruit in the Christian life involves a death to self. That's why Richard Foster said, Humility means freedom from the fine threads of the self. The hyphenated sins of the human spirit. Freedom from the self-sins, self-concern, self-promotion, self-pity, self-seeking, self-indulgence, self-deprecation, self-deceit, self-absorption, and so on. And if we do not find freedom from the self-sins in our life, we will not make progress in the Christian life. So that's what this next passage is about. Paul goes from picture of the Christian to, buddy, you can't do it. This is the path to take to get there. And it's the path of humility. So I'd like for you to read with me starting in verse three. We'll go through verse 11. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count. Equality with God, a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And he has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in this passage, uh, it's about humility. So the first couple verses, 3 and 4 and 5, are, are a, a text. And then uh, 6 through 11 are a hymn or a song. They're in meter. Um, and so this is basically this hymn that Paul writes about the humility of Jesus. And through Paul's the text, so verse 3 and 4 and 5, And this hymn, there are two key themes that Paul weaves through here. And so we're, instead of preaching a verse at a time, I'm going to preach on these two key themes, okay? And and both of these are U-turns that you need to make and I need to make if we are going to walk in humility in our lives. Um, And the first U-turn of humility is a U-turn from self-significance to honoring the significance of others. We've got to move from self-significance to honoring the significance of others. And this first U-turn is a U-turn of the mind. It involves how we think, what we do with our minds. Look at verse 3 for me. We're going to tackle um, the word conceit first. We're going to skip selfish ambition. Do nothing from conceit, but in humility count that's a thinking word, consider others more significant than yourselves. That word, conceit's a compound word in the Greek, is kinodoxia. doxia. Kino means empty or void, and doxia means significance or glory. And so he's basically saying, do nothing from empty glory, empty significance. The sense here is that, that you humans, like we, are empty. We have no significance in and of ourselves. Inherently, we're empty, and yet we are trying to puff ourselves up and make ourselves significant, Right? It's, it's self-concern is what it is. It is not, it's not only arrogance, it's also self-pity. It's not just self-confidence, it's also self-hatred. It's any concern with myself, it's an over-concern with our own lives, when the most significant person in my life is who? Me, right? That's what he's talking about here. He says, do nothing from that heart, but in humility count others as better than yourselves. And Jesus took a different way. He did not take the way of conceit, but in humility, he counted others, counted you and me as more significant than himself. Look at Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, and then this next phrase says, which was also in Christ Jesus in the Greek, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to but he emptied himself. And that word emptied is the same word from conceit. It's the word kenos, kenosis. And actually in the early church, they made this into a doctrine in the church. It was kenosis because a lot of people were saying that this meant Jesus was no longer truly God. And so they developed the doctrine of kenosis because people were preaching that and Jesus didn't leave his deity. The word kenosis, it means empty, but it also means to void something. So think about a voided check, right? Um, Jesus emptied himself. He voided his life. If you void a check, do you empty the account? Do you empty the account? No, I hope not. I've voided the check before. You don't empty the account. What do you do? But is that check empty? Yeah, it's empty of power. Jesus voided the check of his life. And so he still had all of his glory, all of his deity, all of his prestige, and yet he chose to void the check of his life. And so he did not lean on any of his power. He did not lean on any of his prestige. He did not lean on any of his honor, any of his praise. He, he unclothed himself, and he clothed himself in humility, in human form. You see what Paul's saying here. He's saying that we, who are inherently empty, spend our lives making ourselves significant, while Jesus, who is inherently significant, spent his life making himself empty, Right? We're going, the, we're going the wrong direction, right? It's like me and Noah on 17, we're passing Christ on the way. And here's the question, why did Jesus do it? Why did he humble himself? Did he just come down to earth just to do it, just for a good spiritual practice? Like, let me just think lowly of myself? Well, no, that's, that's not why he did it. He did it because he counted. That word counted is a mental, it's a mind word. It means to consider something. He considered us more significant than himself. He looked down on you and me and, and the inhabitants of earth, all of us, in our weak and broken and filthy and, and limited and betraying ways. And he said, that person, those people are more significant than me in all my glory. I'm going I'm to count them more significant. And I'm going I'm to unrobe from my glory. I'm going to come down and become a man on earth. And this is the first step towards any sort of fruit in the Christian life. If you don't begin to look at the people around you and see them as inestimably valuable, deeply significant, extremely lovable in your life, people for whom God died, purposeful, worthy of being known, then you cannot bear any fruit. The first U-turn we need to make is we need to be able to look at the people around us and see their value, see their significance, see their worth above our own. You, You can't love the people around you if you don't first see that they are valuable and worthy of being loved. All of your love will just look like what's in it for me, right? You cannot be patient with your kids or with your spouse or with your neighbor if you don't first see that they are worthy of being patient with. Their agenda and their purpose and their expectations are good and significant and worthy to lay yours down for. You cannot begin to be compassionate to another person's real need If you're so caught up with your own significance of your own life, we've got to lay down that part of us in order to pick up humility in our life. That's the first turnaround of humility is a turnaround of the mind. We need to begin to see other people as significant in our lives. But humility cannot stay there. Humility has got to move from our mind to our will. Our will is the part of us that acts. It's the part of us that makes a decision and then follows through with that decision. So that's the second U-turn we have is we go from self-seeking to seeking the good of another. go from self-seeking to seeking the good of another. Look with me in verse 3. We're going to tackle the word selfish ambition this time. Do nothing from selfish ambition, but, then look in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is a U-turn of the will, that that we who are inherently self-seeking, you and I seek our own interests. That's what we do. We have to make a U-turn and begin to seek the interests of the people around us. That word selfish ambition is literally self-ambition. We talked about it a few weeks ago. It is an ambition for myself, myself, me, that I be comfortable, that I be secure, that I be praised, that I be approved, that I I be successful, that I be rich. It's, It's this ambition that whatever my heart desires, I get it. And sometimes that looks like traditional pride right? It looks like arrogance. Sometimes it looks like self-pity. Sometimes it looks like serving your heart out for someone else because you're really gaining something for yourself in the midst of that service. It looks different in all of our lives, but in all of us, it is an ambition, a self-seeking, a seeking of our own interests. It's the part of us that asks, what's in it for me, right? Wives, every foot massage you've ever gotten from your husband has that question in it, right? What's in it for me, right? If you ever get, like every foot massage, that's the underlying question. Every time your husband has washed the dishes, every time he's folded the clothes, every time he's cooked dinner, the underneath, it's not, hey, let me just serve you. It's a what's in it for me, right? Man, you are going to be honest here? Is anyone else in this room, is that just me? Right? It's a what's in it for me. That's how we're wired. Ladies, I don't know how you're wired, but I'm sure you're the same way. Like we all look out for our own interests. We seek our own interests. And Paul is saying, hey, buddy, I know that. Guys, I know that. But you've got to turn. Your will has to change. And Jesus took a different way. He did not seek to claim and to cling to his own interests, but he laid them down and took up our interests. Look with me in Philippians 2, verse 7, within the midst of this song here. He says this But Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. I thought he he already humbled himself. He did, but he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ on a cross is a picture of him taking up our interests on his shoulders and laying down his own. It was not in his best interest to go to the cross. It was not in his best interest to put on flesh. It was not in his best interest to be mocked and scorned and tortured and spit on. It was not in his best interest to endure hell for you and for me. It was in our best interest. He didn't just count us more significant, but with his life, he took up our interests on his own shoulders, and he quit seeking his own interests. That is the way of Christ. Paul is saying that while we, who are at the very bottom, spend our lives making our way to the top. Christ, who is at the very top, spent his life making his way to the bottom. It's it's we who are, the Bible says, servants. Like, that's who you are. We're servants. Try to make ourselves kings of our own world. Christ, who is the king of the world, made himself a servant of the world so that you and I might become sons and daughters of the king. That's humility. It's when you begin to have a total U-turn of mind and will and take up the interests of the people around you question is, how and why did he do it? What does this look like in real practice? Look at me in verse eight. There is a crux of this song in verse eight. In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming what? Obedient, obedient to the point of death. It was out of obedience that Christ went to the cross. And obedience—I don't want you to think of obedience being adherence to a set of rules and regulations. Obedience biblically is abandoning my self will to the will of God. It is letting go of what I want to do and what I desire and what I please and is saying God, I'm going to follow your will. I'm going to do your pleasure. I'm going to abandon my will to your will. It's Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Remember the story, he he's a couple hours away from being crucified and he's in the garden and he knows cuz God's given him insight what's about to come. He knows he's about to be betrayed by one of his two of his disciples. He's about to be tortured He's about to be questioned. He's about to be mocked. He's about to be beaten. He's about to be crucified. He's about to put hell on his shoulders. He's about to endure hell for us, be separated from his Father. He knows that's coming. And he's in the garden. And in, as a man, he is begging with the Father. He's saying, God, if you will, will you please let this cup pass from me? He's basically saying, God, is there another way? Is there another way to deal with the sins of the world besides me having to go through this because I don't want to do it? This is not my will. I don't want to go to the cross. And then he says, before the Father can respond to him, he says these beautiful words, but not my will, but your will be done. That is obedience. Obedience is looking at God, looking at his word and saying, God, I don't want to just find the the minimum requirements of the Christian life. I want to abandon my will to yours. That's the obedience that Christ showed us. It was Christ yielding in the garden before the cross and and Christ yielded to the cross before the cross so that on the cross, as he was hanging there, he could look at the criminal next to him, the real criminal, and say, today you will be with me in paradise. He said, Father, I'll take one more lifetime of wrath on my shoulders so that that son can be in heaven with me. Jesus yielded to the cross before the cross so that on the cross he could look down at the soldiers who were spitting on him and yelling at him and mocking him and, 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 and making fun of him, and he could say, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. He yielded to the cross before the cross so that at the cross he could hear Judas betraying him and see Peter betraying him, and he could not be crushed by it. Why? Because he had yielded his will to the will of the Father. That's what obedience is. That's what the heart of humility is. Humility is not just like self-deprecation. It's not just me like going around serving everybody. It's me serving God. And let me tell you what you'll find when you begin to seek out the Lord's will. When you begin to seek to obey his will above your own, you will find that God is deeply interested in the people around you. He's deeply interested in your spouse. He's deeply interested in your kids, not to make them happy, um, not so that they are, are good tokens for you, not, not that, but he's interested in their souls. He's deeply interested in your neighbor, like the annoying one, the one who edges your yard for you passive-aggressively, right? He's interested in that neighbor. Like, he's interested deeply in the people around you. God isn't just interested in you, like, living a holy life. He's interested in you giving your life away for the people in your life so that they might know him. And what you'll find is that when you begin to give up your own interests, someone else takes them up. Not someone else is God. You don't have to look out for yourself. You don't have to, to care for yourself and, and preen yourself and, and make sure that you're okay. You can give your life away seeking the best interests of others in obedience to God. And God has you. like He's holding the universe up. Do you believe that he's real? He's with you in your life. You don't have to defend yourself because the Father going to defend you and if not here, he'll be defending you for eternity. You don't have to watch out for your provision. You can can give money away radically and trust that God will provide for you. Do you believe that? God takes up the interests of the people around him. He is deeply interested in them, and he wants to serve them. He wants to encourage them. He wants to show them grace. He wants to show them presence. He wants to show them his tenderness and compassion, and if you're willing You can begin to be a citizen worthy of the kingdom. You can begin to be a man or a woman or a child who begins to to encourage others as Christ does. You can begin to be a man or a woman that that agape loves the people around you, who is deeply, intimately present with them, who is compassionate and tender towards those around you. And it all comes through humility. And and here's the question that, that Paul wanted them to answer. And this is the question that I really want you to answer this morning in the confines of your own soul is, are you going the wrong way? Are you going the wrong direction? And I'm not saying like, are you not a Christian? This is not that type of conversation. You can be a Christian and be going the wrong direction. Are you going the wrong direction? Because Christ is up here, infinitely glorious, like utterly significant. His interests, you know what they are? Running the universe, right? Right. Upholding it with the word of his power like he is the most needed the most indispensable the most Utterly relevant person being in the universe and yet christ Came down to earth and here's you over here Limited weak empty of any inherent significance. You are totally unneeded. You are you are totally dispensable Um, You are irrelevant to the operation of the universe, right? Some of you is like no, i'm not. Yes, you are if you died tomorrow your family and maybe some friends would be sad for a while, and then they would move on with their lives. And and your workplace would replace you within two months, okay? And your dog would get adopted by someone else, right? And your gym membership would expire. And your cell phone number, oh yeah, that one you've had for 20 years, it would be given to another person, and they would have your number now and then get all the spam calls that you get right now, right? Like your, your house would be joyfully sold by a real estate agent, and then moved into by someone else and they might nap on your couch because you are unneeded you are dispensable you are unnecessary to the to the spinning of the world and yet you and when i say you i'm sitting right there you and me we spend our lives trying to make ourselves significant we spend our lives like like caring for ourselves and, and making ourselves, and, and, and pumping ourselves up, and living for us, our self-concern, our self-interest, and yet Christ is going the other way. And if we are not careful, we will pass him on the way, and we won't even recognize him. Are you going the wrong direction in your life? And it's all the self-life. It's all me living for myself. And I'm going to be honest here. The Christian church, the American church, we I'm going to include myself in that. All we have done is encourage that life, that self-life. We said, yes, like, be your best self. Self Self-care. Self-care is the way to go. Care for yourself. Look out for your own interests. Yes, like, learn yourself. Get your Enneagram number, self-knowledge. That's the way to go, right? Success. Get to the highest point in your field. Platform yourself. Get on that podcast. Get on that interview. Write a book. Like, do it all, right? That's the good life. That's how you make an impact for the kingdom of God. And yet, who is the most impactful person on the face of the world for the kingdom of God? Jesus. And which way did he go? Down. Did he platform himself? No. Did he write any books? Trick question. No. Yes and no, right? He didn't write a page of this. Did did he get on a podcast? Was he up on the streets, like promoting himself? Did he become king? Did he become, thank you, Britt, did he become a high priest? No. Christ was going down. And yet we're going up and we, as the American church, American Christianity, we've convinced you that the best way is up and to the left and that Jesus can help you get there, right? Get a little Jesus in your life, come to church, read your Bible, pray, and all your troubles will go away. And that is a lie. It is a lie. Christ taught the other way. Biblically, the way of humility, the way of abundance, the way of true life is down and not up. The way to follow Christ is to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him. Have you ever thought about that? Deny yourself and take up your cross. In the Beatitudes, Jesus' longest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, the very beginning of it, the foundation of it, the Beatitudes. And he said, blessed, joyful, happy is the poor in spirit. That word spirit means will, same word. Blessed is the poor in will. Blessed is the person who has yielded their will to the will of God and no longer seeks their own interest. Blessed are those who mourn, not who mourn over their own lives, but who look out and mourn over the lives around them. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed is the merciful. Not the person that pats them on the back, not on the back for the food pantry, but the person that, is, that gives themselves. Sacrificially, to be merciful to someone else. Blessed is the one whose reputation is torn down because of the name of Christ. That is true blessing. The way of leadership, biblically, is not to lord ourselves over others, but to be a what? Servant to others, just like Christ served us. The way to be eternally exalted is to be um, humbled here on this earth. The true gain is losing what you have on earth for the sake of Christ, so that you may gain it for eternity. That's the biblical worldview, and it's not what we teach, and it's not what we write books on, and it's not what we give sermons on, it's not what our worship songs say. That is what the Bible says the path is to take that we should follow, and that is the life of blessing. Let me read this quote from Richard Foster. He puts it so well. It says, as we experience the many little deaths of going beyond ourselves, we increasingly enter in to the grace of humility. Let me read that again. As we experience the many little deaths of going beyond ourselves, going beyond yourself to your kids, going beyond yourself to your spouse, going beyond yourself to your neighbor, going beyond yourself to your coworker, going beyond yourself over and over and over again. It takes death every time. If it doesn't hurt, you're not doing it right. Right? The many little deaths, then we will increasingly over time enter into the grace of humility. And as we enter into the grace of humility, we are finally free to love our enemy as ourselves, to be compassionate on the person in need, to draw near to the person that smells bad, the person that we would never want to be around, to welcome someone into our home that we previously wouldn't welcome into our home, to to befriend the annoying person, to to look out for the widow and the orphan, to, to care deeply for the people around us because we have been begun living a life of decrease in our lives. That, that is the secret of the Christian life. The secret of the Christian life is not the, the right Bible reading plan or the right worship music or the right church. The secret of the Christian life is following Jesus on the path of humility. And if you do, if you begin small steps at a time to follow him on that path, what you will find when you look back is that your life is marked with fruit. Your life is marked with agape love of the Father. Your life is marked by coming alongside other people in their walk and encouraging them deeply. You'll all of a sudden have people come up to you and say, man, I, I don't know where I would be without you. And you're like, me? I didn't even know I was there. You'll start to have deep, intimate fellowship with others where they are marked by your presence in their life. You'll begin to live a life of tenderness and compassion to the people around you. But it all starts on the road of humility. Guys, as I said earlier, this is... This is New for me, and I'm grieved that it's new for me. An arrogant pastor is an oxymoron, but I'm beginning this path of humility, and what I have found is that there is incredible abundance and joy as you walk down this path. And so, my invitation to you this morning is will you join me? Will you join the church? Will you join Christ on this path of humility? And and rather than seeking your own significance and your own interests, would you begin laying them down for the interests of the people around you? So, we're going to sing together. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us before we do. We're going to sing a song called Behold Him. And as we do, I just want you to, even if you don't want to sing, um, if you want to just fix your eyes on Jesus who was up here and came down to earth for us, let's behold Him together. Father, we, we are so thankful that you counted us significant. We're thankful that you didn't cling to your own interests. You didn't cling to your own significance. But you lowered yourself, that we might become sons and daughters. Jesus, thank you for your example. God, I pray that in small, small steps, our church, the men and women and children in this church, would begin to enter into this grace of humility. They'd begin to taste the true, abundant life of Christ. It's a life of death, but also a life of true life. Lord, I pray that as a church, we would be transformed by the gospel, that we would live in Richmond Hill and in the Savannah area as citizens of the kingdom of God, that when people see our lives, they would be impacted because we're different. God, let us not continue to buy into the lie of the American worldview. Lord, let us not live as citizens of America, but as citizens of Jesus, ones that pursue lowliness and humility over significance and honor. So, Jesus, we love you. Right now, we pray that the next five minutes as we fix our eyes on you through worship, that you would work in our hearts. We pray these things in your name. Amen.